0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021. It's the day after what I'm reliably informed by many uh, amused listeners who emailed to tell me what an idiot I am that of course yesterday was the summer solstice, not the vernal equinox, not itatis, I don't know. We were throwing around Latin words And I should have known that it was the summer solstice because I am a moderately educated person and that is really not a hard thing to know. Uh, But I didn't. And so thank you for correcting me. Continue continue to do so because, you know, I basically we sit here, we talk five hours a week. Uh, This is the thing that amazes me about when Rush Limbaugh died and there was all this talk about how horrible Rush Limbaugh was and how terrible he was. And I think his last year's you know, when he sort of became a, when he became this, you know, Trumpian, Trumpier than Trump guy, I wasn't that thrilled with him, but the fact that he talked for like 30 years, three hours a day, five days a week, and that all people could do was dig up, he said this in 2003, he said this in 1997, he had this one sentence that was really outrageous in 2014. This guy must've spoken tens of thousands of words a week in public for, you know, decade. I speak five hours. We all speak together five hours a week. And I don't know how many dumb, stupid things I've said that are erroneous and illiterate and factitious. And so, you know, these people who do this, it's very impressive, which also gives me a moment to wish a happy birthday to George Will, you know, who, uh, who has turned 80 or turned 80 in the last... Couple of weeks and um, and has you know maybe had the greatest single run of any newspaper columnist in in American history. He is uh, you know he is like gaining on his fiftieth year as a as a newspaper columnist, uh, twice weekly, three times weekly, whatever. No one's ever had a run like this before. No one has ever remained relevant in the way that he's remained relevant before. And that's a it's a it's just a pretty it's a, a stor- extraordinary achievement and like one of those things like Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak we're probably never going to see or you know or Cy Young winning what five hundred and eleven games we're never going to see anything remotely like that before there what there isn't going to be another George Will and and it was a and it's a it's an amazing accomplishment and with that let me welcome to our airwaves as usual executive editor Abe Greenwald hi Abe and John. Associate Editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us again, mm-hmm. one of our favorite non-daily participants, tech commentary columnist, James B. Meggs, <laughs> former editor of Popular Mechanics, former Poobah at Entertainment Weekly, former a lot of things, host of the, what's it called again? How do we fix it? How do we fix it? The reason I don't know the name is that I don't know how to fix anything. So I should listen, but I've already given up on the possibility that I can ever fix anything. So I I, I don't
1: listen that often. And I want to add regular ambient presence at my gym. One of my gym's televisions is on the channel where Jim appears all the time. I have no idea what this channel is, but it's he pops terrible. up. He's in my living room, he's in my gym. I can't escape you, Jim. What's the, the channel? Prob-
2: it's probably the History Channel. I do a lot of TV shows for these History Channel documentaries. One of them is called <laughs> Mysteries of the Abandoned about cool abandoned infrastructure around the world like mining ghost towns and shipwrecks and other things of, of, hey, of i are just watching this with my kids and all of a sudden I know that guy and now you're <laughs> everywhere.
0: It's your honor, and you're here, and you're here to talk uh, about. Remember, we had you on last month because you had our cover piece. Thank God for Big Pharma, uh, which remains. Uh, you know, uh, all the news continues to accentuate the fact that these vaccines. I mean, the latest being that the Moderna vaccine apparently has efficacy well over ninety percent just from the first dose, based on most of the tests. Um, so it just it just continues sort of roll in. What an extraordinary human accomplishment this was! And so please go read Jim's piece. Uh, Thank God for Big Farmer. We're not here to talk about Thank God for Big Farmer. We are here to talk about his piece about the lab leak hypothesis and how it was covered and 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 covered up and uh, why. And I want to start by asking, by posing this to you plainly, something you've said in emails. And you, you sort of you go into a little bit in the piece, um, but that one thing that went on when 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 the the conventional opinion in the spring of 2020 went to that one was not supposed to delve into the lab leak hypothesis that it was unlikely to be the case and it was unlikely and it jumped from animals to humans without any human involvement and all of that um, is that uh, this was the view that was stated very kind of plainly by Anthony Fauci and that uh, Anthony Fauci is not just Anthony Fauci the humble country doctor with the glasses with the accent with the, from the queens and he, so it's worked for government for 40 years as a kindly government bureaucrat and all this Anthony Fauci is a man at the what is the name of his agency the National
2: Center for Infectious
0: Diseases I can't remember which part and of allergies it. yeah okay
2: right it's part of the, uh, it's part yeah. of NIH and and it controls a lot of funding. That's what I want to talk about. This year, his
0: agency alone, $40 billion in funding. One agency within NIH, okay? That is the size of a weapons system. That is the size of, you know, remember we've heard for years about, oh, the cost overruns on the F-35 and the cost of this and that. 40 billion dollars a year is an almost unthinkably large amount of money. Anthony Fauci isn't just a guy sitting there 80 years old with his glass. He has been the head of an agency that distributes, has been for 40 years distributing tens, by now well over a trillion dollars has been distributed under, under Fauci's aegis for the last two generations. What effect do do you think, Jim, what is that, what are we to take away from that fact about the way the conversations are conducted around these matters that he has an interest in or that he expresses an opinion on?
2: I think this is something a lot of people don't really understand about how science works. Even if someone is a researcher at a major university, they only really get their big projects funded if they can drum up grants from from some some foundation or um, some government agency, and um, like the National Science Foundation. And it is really incumbent on any scientist to be very diplomatic to make sure that grant money keeps coming in, because if the grant money uh, tapers off, then you can't hire graduate students. You can't publish your papers. You you know, the grants sometimes, you know, pay, pay for not just lab equipment and 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 um, tests and stuff, but, but even for, you know, flying people around the world to go to conferences and, and all kinds of things that are the lifeblood of, of doing science. Now, that doesn't mean that the whole system is completely corrupt, but it does mean that there are incentives to be part of, of the consensus that is shared by, by people at the top of the profession. And, you know, there's this romantic image of science It kind of dates back to Thomas Kuhn, the guy who came up with the famous theory about paradigm shifts, that every scientist is like a, a Galileo or a, an Einstein or Copernicus, you know, just ready to overthrow some reigning Orthodoxy in their field and and blow away the old paradigm. That's where that phrase overused phrase paradigm shift comes from. But that's really rare in science. Even Thomas Kuhn said that was really rare. Most scientists are helping build an edifice, you know, in concert with other people. They want to produce work that helps support the direction that that the field is going. And that's not a bad thing because these these scientific revolutions are actually very rare, and there are a lot of of fields that they don't need a revolution. They just need more good hard work to, uh, to establish more information. But scientists are, are more collaborative uh, than than we tend to think. Even if they're competitive, they still, they want to be liked, they want to be part of the club. And I don't mean to say this in like a disdainful way. This is the way most you know, social projects work. But when there is a dispute, as there was with this lab leak theory, and as you remember in the very early months of the pandemic it seemed like a reasonable question okay there's this brand new virus just happens to be emerging in a city in china that has one of the world's top virus researching labs no one knows where it came from the chinese government's being super secretive we should look into whether it's coming from the lab that was considered a completely reasonable question for the first few months and then once um, Senator Tom Cotton mentioned it, uh, Trump mentioned it, all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 this is a crazy conspiracy theory. And what was disheartening was even some of the leading scientists got together to really push back on um, not only the idea that 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 we should look into, not, you know, to push back on the idea that that. We should look into it at all. Instead of saying, well, it's unlikely, but why not check it out? They were they were saying they were joining in what was essentially a political argument that it was a conspiracy theory. It was anti-China. It was something that was being used by the Trump administration for political purposes. And what was alarming was how thoroughly that shut down the discussion among scientists for most of a year.
3: So can yep. I can I ask a question actually following on that real quick? Which is you have this great line towards the end of your of your piece in our issue about this where you talk about uh, humility in science, and I wonder if. Part of the reason that there was uh, such a rush to political judgment about this scientific question is that scientists have have come to see themselves as as players in the political sphere in a way that they a shouldn't shouldn't be and b um, uh, probably gives uh, causes a lack of humility when these sorts of public policy or public health questions arise. Uh, absolutely, and I want to be clear. I you know most scientists in the pandemic did really
2: important work. And there was, I mean, look at the vaccines. There was so much amazing work, uh, people you know, working around the clock in a whole range of fields. Uh, so well, I don't want this to be an indictment of science, but, but scientists are vulnerable to the same pressures all of us are vulnerable to. And when this issue did get politicized, for the same reasons people don't challenge political correctness on college campuses, even if they don't agree with it, sometimes, you know, no one really wanted to be out in front of agreeing with the Trump administration in effect. And what's so interesting about a lot of the articles about the, the lab league theory that tried to, to dismiss it or say it was debunked was, was how often they just they just assumed that anything that, that might be useful to the other side was therefore illegitimate. Instead of what are the, asking what are the facts, they, all of these pieces would basically say, well, this could feed into a um, conservative talking point. So therefore, we shouldn't discuss it rather than, well, that's unfortunate that it, that it supports an argument that people who don't like hold, but that's really not germane to whether or not it's true. I mean, that's the position that people should have been taking.
0: See, what, what, what's we talked yesterday about the story in the New York Times about, okay, Noah, you can do it. The town of the Soviet town of Yekaterinburg yes the Russian town of Yekaterinburg called Sverdlovsk during the during the reign of the Soviet Union where uh, there was an anthrax leak from a government lab uh, the Soviet Union claimed that it was a naturally occurring event and the scientific community in the west rallied behind the Soviet Union's explanation only to be told 14 years later when Boris Yeltsin became president of Russia, that in fact it had been a leak from a lab and that the key scientist who had been the um, uh, defender or the, or the expostulator of the, no, it was natural, not a leak from a lab was a Harvard scientist named Matthew Measelson, who then later also announced that all of his evidence suggested that no, there had not been use of a chemical weapon in Southeast Asia by the Soviets, that it was bee pollen, and everybody accepted that too. Here's as a as somebody who was obsessed with popular culture, let me just put it this way: in the 1970s, if you had made a movie about a a, a corporate or not whatever, the idea that corporations that work in science and do sciency things are guilty of doing things, having accidents where there are leaks that cause environmental disasters with immense human cost. That's been a cliche in American popular culture for 40 years. The China Syndrome, which is that nuclear power plant, that was 1979. Stephen King's The Stand published I think in 1980 Uh, Aaron Brockovich, which of course tells a a real world story, a civil action, which tells a real world story, Love Canal, if you say it's a corporation and because they're so hungry for profits, you know, they were sloppy or whatever and then they they covered it up and, you know, and it it took an enterprising lawyer or, or reporter or something to break this open. Whereas in fact, what we know, aside from what happened at Three Mile Island, What we know, in fact, is that there were three devastating lab leaks, as far as we know, or or, or, there were three devastating accidents. Uh, This one in Yekaterinburg in 1979, probably, we don't know this, but let's say probably, likely, possibly, Wuhan, and Chernobyl. What's the story there? These were government. Not only were they government actions, but they were communist government actions. And for some bizarre reason, and it's not so bizarre to me, but you know we don't need to sort of go go into it because in some ways it's a weird overhang from an argument that's been going on for a hundred years. For some reason, accuse a communist government of being uh, of 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 economic of um, environmental depredation for which they are famous, and. Uh, China in particular is the worst polluter the world has ever seen. No one has ever seen pollution like Chinese pollution over the last 40 years. And for some reason, liberal opinion always wants to defend them. But let somebody say, let some tort lawyer say that some corporation in Kentucky, there was a fish dead in a river or GE is responsible for troubles with the Hudson River's water when it bought a company that 30 years earlier had dumped some stuff into the water for which GE was not in fact responsible, it doesn't matter, they're guilty. Private capitalist businesses are guilty of terrible things. Communist governments get the benefit of the doubt.
1: Well, it didn't used to be the case. Um, You know, the the Plum Island theory, which is that it is a a conspiracy theory that the Plum Plum Island Animal uh, Infectious Disease Research Center uh, essentially invented Lyme disease, created Lyme disease and and that's why we have Lyme disease today. Um, That wasn't a right-wing conspiracy theory, that was a left-wing conspiracy theory and it was uh, one that found purchase on the left at a time when um, the left was perfectly capable of criticizing government action, government overreach and government incompetence. Um, It was was only in this century that, uh, you know, back to the paradigm shift, that the left sort of concluded that any criticism of government malfeasance uh, in the pursuit of some sort of grandiose project, not just, you know, some, some you know, Campion-like figure who blew, the, blew everything up because he was an idiot, but because of bureaucratic inertia created disasters. That undermined the progressive project,
2: and that was something you couldn't say out loud. That reflects the way that the FBI has been rehabilitated from, you know, the agency that tried to hound Martin Luther King to death to this bastion of upstanding patriotism whose statements can never be doubted.
0: Right. No, it's a fascinating thing. So again, it's always whose ox is being gorged. It's just interesting that for some reason, people decided to line up with the Chinese Communist Party, I, I mean that it's a whole different thing. Like, it, you know, there was some kind of weird ideological bent that led people in the 20th century to line up with with communist regimes on the grounds that they were they were the ultimate in the progressive
2: project. Well, you I mean, look at Tom. Remember Thomas Friedman? Probably we, this may go back 10 or 12 years now. He did this famous column about what a fantastic job the Chinese government was doing. Uh, investing in solar and wind technology and, and that they were going to lead the world in, in these clean energy uh, technologies. And sometimes he just wishes that, you know, yes, it, it's a repressive government and everything, but sometimes it'd be so great to just have that power for a day to, you know, get all these good, big, important things done that these messy democracies can't do. Meanwhile, since that column was written, China's CO2 emissions have probably gone up by an, another 50%, at least, and they're still climbing.
0: But I mean, this is, you know, this is Jonah Goldberg's point, liberal fascism, and and a general point, which is that um, that idea, you know, look, get people out of the way, they stink, and politicians and everything, and put experts in charge to improve things. That is the the centerpiece of progressivism, and then literally what where progressivism not I'm not using now progressivism as a pejorative. I'm using it as a descriptive. The progressive movement, led by the progressive party, and you know, and ultimately, sort of Woodrow Wilson's ideology, you know, ideology as president, and all this, a lot of which followed on, understandably, decades of corrupt American governance, people buying jobs, uh, you know presidents getting assassinated for for not handing out the right spoils to the right people, you know, um, disappointed office seeker, Charlie Guiteau, uh assassinating James Garfield, because he, do I have my killers right here? I think I'm right, but, um, you know, for, for not get, giving him the patronage job he thought he deserved. And so you then had reforms, civil service reforms, a professionalization of of government work, and then this then led to this idea that in general, experts should be running everything and politics should be left out of it. And this ended up merging with, progressivism ended up merging essentially with some, with communist thinking, which is, you know, we will tell you what to do and improve your lives, whether you want them improved or not, according to a plan that we lay out. And the odd thing is that atavistically it's 2020, and, uh, you know, Soviet Union is gone, the communist movement is dead, the international communist movement is dead. And weirdly people kind of circled the wagons around a communist government because they didn't
2: like the American president? I think that's exactly what happened. And you talk about the idea that we should put experts in charge of all these things. And, you know, in a lot of areas, there you do need experts. We have, we have to be careful about denigrating expertise in general. But what's so alarming about the whole Lab League story is how the the experts in virology and public health were so quick to kind of shut the garage door on this notion that that there was uh, something to be investigated here. And we later found out that one of the guys, uh, Peter Daszak, who leads a foundation that distributes a lot of the federal grant? The federal government gives grants to him, and then he distributes them to researchers. Well, it turns out he was really the one who organized one of the big letters, uh, pulling together different virologists, trying to uh, say that this was a, a a ridiculous conspiracy theory. When in fact he'd been uh, it was had worked very closely with Dr. Xi, the the, the famous bat lady in the Wuhan lab, and um, and and other scientists who were involved in research there. So there were, there were huge conflicts of interest. And here's what I found really intriguing and kind of inspiring is the work to investigate the lab leak hypothesis was, did not come from the top experts in the field for the most part. It came from people on the fringes. There was this kind of self-organized uh, group that, um, that, that all over the world, some professional researchers, lots of amateurs, But they did a lot of digging into various databases that came up with a lot of very compelling information, uh, including the fact that a lot of the research done at Wuhan, we always heard it's a biosafety level four laboratory. That means it's best in the world and there's only a few of these in the, on the whole planet. Well, guess what? It turns out they're, they're, a lot of their bat virus research was done at level three or level two. So not exactly the uh, the kind of ultra high security that that had been touted and used as an example of why the lab leak was, was, was so unlikely. So it wasn't the experts uh, so much as people who were willing to challenge expert opinion uh, one of my favorites is a, is a researcher at the Harvard-MIT uh, 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 Broad Institute of, of Health, who is a, a molecular biologist named Alina Chan. She's a postdoc. You know, she does not have a job yet. Uh, you know, she doesn't have a, she's not on a tenured position yet. And yet, from the very get-go, she was challenging the assertions from the top people in her own field. And I just found that very, very brave and very, really interesting, and and I thought it was telling that that... That the people who were were keeping this notion alive were were outsiders to some extent, and um, and if they hadn't done that, this whole thing may have gradually, this whole question may have faded out. We still don't know the answer. Let's be clear. You know, we don't know it's a lab leak. There could be a natural source found someday. It's possible, but um, but we're not seeing the evidence for that. And. Hey.
4: Yeah, I, I just I I I think Jim's point here about the sort of outside voices um, sort of upsetting the 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 status quo is, is so important because we've seen it happen before. Um, for example, um, climate change. I'm, this is not to debate the 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 veracity of, of you know uh, uh, climate change studies as a whole, but there have been times that there have been um, sort of massive papers released by institutions or journals um, saying that the oceans are warming uh, by X factor uh, five times, 20 times faster than we thought, whatever it is. Um, and, the, and the paper gets distributed and makes a lot of headlines. And then um, there'll be sort of some independent blogger who will say, well, uh, I just, I poured through the, the data and it seems to me they made a, a sort of fundamental mistake um, in a in a sort of you know sort of a minor mistake that kind of threw everything off um, that will get attention and um, papers have been retracted um, on that basis but so what 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 the implications here are um interesting because this to me um, speaks to why it can be so dangerous all this talk of banning, um, what's seen as disinformation or misinformation, because sometimes because things like science and other fields, they, they follow these trends and where the money goes. And Jim, as you say, it's not because they're bad people, it's just because they're people. And that's the way human nature works. But it can create these juggernauts that it that whereby it will take a an outsider of no standing to be able to who has nothing to lose to say, I think there's a problem there. And if you have uh, social media platforms and whomever else sort of banning dissent, essentially sort of you know um, uh, uh, making dissent you know seem like a, a some sort of thought crime,
0: um, then you then you don't get to correct the record. I mean, I think it's there's an even uh, deeper general point, which is that far from you know America being just so skeptical of expertise and we need to be in all this. Um, Uh, People, particularly people in the elites, are fantastically credulous, uh, particularly when it comes to social science. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of social science studies issued every year that are the source of every pop psychology article you have ever read about parenting, about, uh, you know, safety, about this, about that, about the other thing. And um, when people do these kind of like, they, they pull out, they take a representative 150 studies just out of nowhere and try to reproduce the results. Generally speaking, somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of these studies turn out to have irre- irre- irreproducible results. Meaning whatever, either they were made up or they were ginned up, or the person who did them understandably spent a year trying to collate data that actually provided no conclusion based on the on the operating theory that led to the creation of the study in the first place. What are you gonna do in that case? Are you gonna say, oh, well, you know, shit. I just did a year's worth of work on nothing. Or are you gonna to try to make lemonade
2: out of lemons? Yeah, I don't think that in most cases where that happens, they necessarily think that they are Doing something that is not scientifically valid, but in a lot of cases, it's 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 what um, some people call a Texas bullseye. A, a Texas bullseye mm-hmm. is if you just randomly take a lot of shots at the side of a barn, and then you later go up and you, you see a bunch of them happen to uh, be concentrated in one area, you draw a big bullseye around that area. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's right. a, there's a fair amount of work in social science. It works that way. You got a massive data, right. then you start looking for for small correlations, and then not necessarily things you were looking for initially and you say, okay, here, we've just, we've shown that you know this is highly indicative of of X, but this problem is also compounded by the way the press works. I, I One of the earlier columns I, I wrote for commentary was about why the media is so bad at science. And it's not always the science writers per se, often it's the more general reporters who will, they don't understand science very well, they don't understand Math or even just numbers very well, so that that's a problem. They're not very curious about asking the kind of skeptical questions they would ask if it was, let's say, a, a political story. But something will come out. I, I remember after um, in the in the, uh, the peak of of, of pandemic, um, you know, red state paranoia. Uh, some economists did a study claiming that that the Sturgis motorcycle rally had led to, I forgot the number, I think it was something like
0: 20,0. cases. <laughs>
2: right, you know, and it was just absurd. It was completely absurd. They basically figured out everybody who'd been, to, you know, how many people had been to Sturgis and where they were from and as best they could. And then they attributed any increase in cases in the areas they were from to the Sturgis rally. And the, the point wasn't just that the paper was bad, but that it got massive coverage around the country. whereas. You know, whereas uh, you know an accurate report of what what was really going on with case levels in Florida or Texas got no attention. So you know the, the the science is vulnerable to a certain amount of political bias in the in what is what is studied, what is not studied to some extent. But that bias is greatly amplified in the way that the press picks up on on research and and amplifies it.
0: I mean, let me just put it to you this way, because some of this has to do with counterintuitive stuff. People are all now in love with counterintuitive stuff, right? It's the whole heart of freakonomics, right? Which is, you know, it's probably the most successful work of popularized behavioral economics ever ever written. And, you know, there's radio shows and TV shows and all of this. And it's always like, oh, you think that this is why this happened. Actually. It's the opposite, right? So counterintuitive thinking then gets people excited, understandably, in part because people do understand that people, that there are hucksters all over the place who are trying to sell us a bill of goods. There are music men everywhere who are trying to sell you an instrument they themselves don't know how to play. It's, that's also human nature and people are are understandably skeptical. But if I said to you in the terms of the common sense argument, there are two ways that a pandemic could start in Wuhan, China. One is somebody eats a bat and then a year and a half later, 4 million people are dead. And the other is there's a lab, they're experimenting with bats. There is a gain of function form of research where you attempt to intensified diseases in order to figure out how to kill, kill them, and that something leaked from that lab. These are your two possible arguments that are being made. Which one does common sense tell you is the more likely? That a guy bought a bat from a salesman, a live bat, ate it, got sick, and then killed four million people. That does not pass in some ultimate sense. That doesn't pass the smell test, even though it's a fantastic story, right? I mean, everybody was making eating bad jokes, and you did your mother make a bat for you, and what you know, all that because it's so weird. Whereas in fact, we know that there are leaks from labs. There have been dozens of leaks from labs. And what was so no, yeah, okay.
2: What was so funny about this backlash against the lab leak theories, everybody was saying that the notion that the virus might have leaked from a high-tech research facility was the racist argument, you know, yeah. whereas yeah. the idea that people were eating bats and pangolins
3: in a wet market. Yeah, (laughs) but this is an important point because I think, John, what you're saying assumes that the narrative construction started with the right question. And I don't think for a lot of our elite media institutions it did. I think it started with how do we write about this without seeming xenophobic because we can't be seen as xenophobic. That was the priority and from there flowed asking all the wrong questions and suppressing all the right ones because that was the narrative that had to be constructed. You could see that particularly in places like the New York Times.
1: I also don't think yep. it's it's in in, in any way uh, unreasonable to assume from the jump that this was z- a zoological or, or or origin. Every SARS virus has had that origin. Anybody who ever read The Hot Zone know, understands that origin. This has been part of Amer- American popular culture, much less um, you know epidemiological culture for decades now. So by no means is it, is it an unreasonable assumption to start from that place.
0: I am not saying that it is unreasonable. I'm saying here are two things. There's a guy selling a bat over here and two blocks over here, there's a lab where they do high level research into coronaviruses. The guy who ate the bat is the cause of the death, not the research into coronaviruses. We knew they were doing research into coronaviruses at the Wuhan lab. I mean, that's the weird part. It's not like it's a lab where they were doing research into, you know, daisies. They were doing research into coronaviruses. That was like one of their major fields of study. Did
4: everyone see the the Jon Stewart comment about this?
0: Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah.
4: Well, it's just his, his great line was, you know, what if, what if Hershey, Pennsylvania, suddenly broke out in chocolatey goodness?
0: Yeah. <laughs> what, what what would yeah. these, what would the yeah. assumption be? Right. You know? I mean, I'll give you another example. Let's say that this didn't happen because we'll go back to the nineteen seventy nine story. Let's say this didn't hadn't happened in Wuhan, but it happened in twenty twenty in Yekaterinburg. Just, just for the sake of argument, there's a there's a virology lab in Yekaterinburg where they study coronaviruses and, and then there's a coronavirus outbreak and, and, and Putin seals off Yekaterinburg and all of this in 2020. In 2020, there was not a Democrat in America who would have had, have had the slightest difficulty saying, Putin's evil, he's the worst person on earth, he's trying to steal our election and Look what's happening now. Look what he just did. Look at that. Now, I, it's not that Democrats and liberals love China. They don't love China. Business people love China. It's not a, you know, and, and are making apologies for China to be fair. so Eric Swalwell loves China. Eric Swalwell loves oh, yeah. China. What are you saying? Anyway, um, but you can see how if the politics had been a little different Or by the way, it hadn't been an election year. I mean, I'm sorry, but if it had been 2019 or 2017, the same kinds of how there's an international crisis. Oh my God, if Trump, and by the way, we thought this too. Trump handles this well, he's sailing into the presidency. So, you know, we can't give him an inch. Now, as it happened, that was actually correct. And Trump was an idiot and blew it and handled it very inconstantly and badly and therefore looked like he didn't have a firm hand on the tiller, scared the suburban Republican women who might've voted for him and, and Biden wins. But this is where none of this happens in a vacuum. And we just to get back to Fauci then. Fauci says it's human to animal transmission. And and uh, he has now become America's favorite person. Animal, that. animal to human. Excuse me, <laughs> animal to human. I apologize. Animal to human transmission. And he's, be- but it's not just that he's America's favorite person. It is that if you are a person who stands crosswise of Anthony, who becomes, if you're, I don't know, a very reputable scientist at a very reputable university, this is the question: Are you putting your universities? grant development program at risk because I don't know from Fauci, I don't know what he's like. I do know having read stuff about the 1980s that he had a very firm belief in how the government was supposed to attack AIDS and he was wrong. And a lot of money went toward an AIDS virus and it was the wrong approach. And according to activists who used to not like him, uh, he slowed the development of the AIDS cocktail that effectively ended the AIDS epidemic by years by focusing on the vaccine. Now, I, I again, you can't I, fault him, you can't fault him. You know, Obviously, if you have something like that, you want a vaccine and not a cocktail. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because we don't know whether There were consequences for people who disagreed with Fauci. Fauci certainly went and he sucked up to the activists. He had to act up in his office. He did whatever he could to quiet the activist left, gay rights left, that was coming at the government uh, in whatever way that he could. But we don't know whether in the research community people had their grant slow roll because they weren't part of the, we need to develop a vaccine for AIDS, as opposed to if we use this drug, that drug, and the other drug, and they can interact in a certain way, we can deal with the symptoms and alleviate them. We can't cure AIDS, but we can make it, we can make it possible for people to live with AIDS. I just want to, as a, as a political matter, it's, it's a fascinating and impressive
4: fact that Fauci managed to serve under presidents whom the left hates for their approach uh, toward um, illness and pandemics, yet they continue to love him. Right, uh, the left hates Reagan um, for for his supposed uh, bad response on to AIDS. Love Fauci. They hate they hate the they hate the Trump response to to COVID, but revered Fauci through all of it. But they don't love Fauci.
1: They love the avatar they made of him.
4: That's but that's that's the same.
1: Yeah, sort it's of. Just, I mean, it's, it's just it's impersonal. in so in in so far as he served as a as a totem, he, it's not about him. He could lose that affection tomorrow because wow. it's not about him. Somebody else can can take it up. It's just about the the cult that was created around him to serve as a to serve as a, a, a living critique of. of well,
0: God. people wanted others, right? People wanted. Deborah Birx, there was a Fauci and Burks as a kind of you know they were both saints, and then she seemed not as um, she wasn't winking enough behind Trump somehow. Burks.
1: yeah, and the same phenomenon uh, was at work making Redfield. this cult around Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, it was all it was it was the sentiment. They they just happened to be at the right place at the right time.
2: Right. Here's what I would submit this backlash against the lab leak theory would have happened without Fauci. Uh, that it it really, there was a lot of pressure to shut this down from um, DAZAC in particular, a couple of leading people in, in the scientific world. And Christine, to your point about the press being really worried about being xenophobic, unfortunately, a lot of scientists also fell in to that, particularly because you know, virology and other sciences are very international in scope. These people all go to conferences, they work together, they work together on papers, they know each other, they respect each other. So there's this sense that if you're criticizing a lab in China, you're criticizing all of us. And and so there was this real reluctance to, to, uh, to entertain this idea. And it's still going on. What we've seen the last few weeks since this whole lab leak thing finally started to break out within the mainstream press and be discussed more openly uh, starting about uh, three uh, three months ago or so. Now there's a, there, so there was a backlash to the suppression of the lab leak theory. Well, now there's a backlash to the backlash. And you're seeing a lot of people saying, well, hold on a minute. There's still really not a lot of evidence. There's no evidence for this. And there was an interesting uh, piece in uh, the journal Nature, um, where um, uh, the writer says, The rhetoric rhetoric around an alleged lab leak has grown so toxic that it's fueling online bullying of scientists and anti-Asian harassment in the United States, as well as offending researchers and authorities in China whose cooperation is needed. And the writer criticizes the group of of scientists who wrote a piece, a letter in, in the journal Science, saying that we do need to look into this. This was a really big change. A lot of leading virologists, including some who'd been poo-pooing the theory initially, signed this big letter saying, yes, we need to look into this. It's definitely a a possibility that should be explored. Well, she says, even if the letter in science was well-intentioned, its authors should have thought more about how it would feed into the divisive political environment surrounding the issue. So, So here you have people counseling scientists to essentially censor themselves out of fear of being offensive, uh, you know, of, of and upsetting um, people in, you know, other researchers and, and, and another government, while that government is actively suppressing scientific research, completely locking down access to uh, to the materials we would need to really fully investigate this. And, 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 you know, you, there's this, this argument that there's, well, there's really no new evidence we didn't have back in spring of 2020. Well, one really interesting piece of evidence is the fact that China hasn't released the records from Wuhan, because if this was so easy to disprove, you'd think they would want to do that. <laughs> right,
0: um, guys, uh, as, as we are uh, in, you know, now in the throes of summer, Um, I just wanna talk to you about our advertiser, Fast Growing Trees. Cause look, now is the time to turn your yard into a paradise with fastgrowingtrees.com. You can skip the big box stores, head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and deliver to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard, fastgrowingtrees.com. Planting season is here. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus the 30-day live and thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting now through July 31st. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Okay, can I tell you something that is um, uh, making me crazy? Uh as we approach the end of the pandemic and the pandemic. So here's here here are two things. Suddenly the story is the Biden administration is going to fall short of its goal of having 70% of Americans vaccinated by July 4th. And this is new because of course, suddenly they are now acknowledging that the Biden administration's program in the early months was to, to under promise and over deliver was to say, oh, we could really do this we could get 100 million shots in arms by you know March 15th and uh, we were already on track for that you know on January 20th and they didn't do anything to speed it up so now suddenly as we are approaching this now they're doing negative pieces on the biden administration's failure or america's failure or whatever to get to the 70% vaccination rate um, and the variants the delta variant is coming coming. Delta variant is coming. Um, So here's why I'm crazy. Yesterday at 9 p.m. every night, Johns Hopkins, which has a coronavirus tracker, was I think the first one before even the time New York Times got started, releases its track for the day, that day. So the coronavirus tracker at 9 p.m. says new cases in the United States 4,063, something like that. Deaths, that's 85. So the death toll is under 100, 4,000, this would have been on that tracker, four days under 10,000 and two days at around 4,000. Remember, Fauci, 10,000 cases a day or under, the pandemic is over. The New York Times, which had 4,000 and 4,000, then comes out at 10 p.m. with its track for the day, or 11, I can't remember which, and it's 15,000. Now, how is that? How is it that one tracker says four and one tracker says 15? The Times has always been more liberal in its counting or uh, however it collects its data. We don't We don't really know what their system is. They supposedly have, Dozens of people who do this every day, I guess they call state to state. I'm not sure how it happens. Um, It's almost like I can't help myself from thinking that they are trying to slow down the end of the pandemic because we have this benchmark. It's 10,000 for a week or two weeks or whatever. We're about there. We could be there by Friday or next Monday or something like that. The New York Times is going to screw this up. And we need that. We need some kind of formal declaration that the pandemic is over because people are still Meshuggah out there. People are bonkers. People are not behaving rationally all over
1: the place. I see it everywhere. And so- The Biden administration gonna rely on the New York Times or the Centers for Disease Control because they have their own tracker. And according to their seven day moving average, they're about two days behind. They don't update for 24 hours, but their seven day moving average right now is at 10,350. Okay,
0: so does that mean, because these trackers, you don't understand, I, again, I'm an idiot with math, so I'm I'm admitting it. I've never understood what the Times is measuring, what that down, when it says it's 14 days and it's down 37%, I have no idea what they're talking about. And if you click on the thing and you go to their page, they don't explain it. I have no idea what that number is. All I know is day to day. Um, but so let's say they're seven day rolling average. So they are, if they're two days behind, unless there was in fact some bizarre surge on Monday that the New York Times caught that Johns Hopkins didn't catch, they're two days away from being under 10,000. And that is, the, that is the federal government's number. Are they gonna come out? Is Biden gonna come out, give a speech and say the pandemic is over? Well. <clears throat> You know, I've seen a lot of uh, uh,
4: op eds and and editorials to the effect of, either, one of two arguments are made. One is, um, the pandemic will not be declared over based on the numbers. Which, I, if it's not going to be based on on the numbers, then I don't know what on earth it, it, it will be over when we stop caring about the victims. That was it. That that that's when the pandemic will be over. In other words, we should never let the pandemic be over because we will lose our humanity um, to have the pandemic be over. Um, uh, and the other one is there will be no declaration of the pandemic being over at all. It won't, that's, that's too simple a way to look at it. Um, you can't expect things to end
2: um, uh, so neatly. Well, it's convenient to have, you know, it's always good to have that in your back pocket. Um, AOC mentioned the ongoing health emergency the other day as a reason she couldn't show up for a vote (laughs) in Congress, you know? So it's just convenient. Like, you know, it helps you make the case for certain kinds of spending uh, and for not worrying about the deficit. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of like, you know, the kid who's got the, the, the big hulking friend that can follow him to school to, uh, intimidate the
3: (laughs) well and I and I know who that friend is in LA it's the teachers unions I sent this to you guys earlier they're still going to follow protocols that they were that they demanded at the height of the pandemic in terms of testing of students uh, mask wearing uh, despite whether or not you're vaccinated you still have to wear a mask at all times like just crazy crazy you know safety theater because it's a power move as you say Jim it's it's an effort to sort of say I have this thing I can use as a as a as a cudgel against anyone who tells me I have to do what I used to have to do before the pandemic.
0: Can I read to you from a profile in the New York Times of Emily Oster? Emily Oster is an economist at Brown. She was the youngest tenured professor in the history or something like that of the University of Chicago. She's an economist. She's now at Brown. And uh, she became, well, she was kind of like a genius young economist, a, a data person. Like Mostly what she did was have do very clever, interesting, unexpected things by collating data and looking at them. And she's done a lot of work on parenthood and babies and the advice that is given uh, to parents about babies that sometimes, frankly, are ridiculous and that uh, the numbers do not justify. And she started looking at the pandemic as a data cruncher. Right, not as a not as an epidemiologist, who by, by the way, which is a data crunching business, but as a as a micro econ, macro and micro economist, mostly as a micro economist, and what what you should do and all of that. So she basically made the first sustained argument that, given everything we know about the science and everything, schools needed to reopen and should be reopened and could reopen safely. Okay, and. He, and, and uh, this was like last August, something like that earlier. And uh, so she, as she says, she was getting questions from people like, is it better to have my in-laws watch my kid or send them to daycare? We've been told to do neither, but that isn't a choice for working parents. So we, we had this bizarre you know, sort of health culture that was sort of telling people that no one could take care of their kids, but they were also on their own if it turned out that they had to work or had a small, whatever it was, okay. So here is what what, um, the New York Times' Dana Goldstein says. Uh, Her data work was discounted by some teachers union activists because it was was funded in part by philanthropies that support non-union charter schools. And it didn't adhere to traditional research norms. The data collection wasn't randomized and initially it skewed toward private and suburban schools. But eventually the database grew to include schools serving more than 12 million of the nation's 15 million K-12 students, including the public schools in New York, California, Texas, and Massachusetts. And so basically what they were saying was, well, these are only private and parochial schools, but guess what? You know what's amazing? The rules are still the same. You know why? Because it's a health thing. It's a health thing. And therefore, you know, if it's this way, if, if kids get it or teachers, whatever, it's transmitted, it'll be transmitted the same in this building that is owned by a private school and this building that is owned by a public school or is a public school. So here's what she, here's, here's this great paragraph. The question about how to behave during a pandemic is fundamentally different from the question of whether to breastfeed, says Dana Goldstein. In an environment of, ra- of viral transmission, your choice potentially affects many others. It turned out that many educators would not accept a coolly intellectual framework for balancing risk and reward, especially not one advanced from the environs of Brown University, public school teachers had experienced sealed shut classroom windows and bathrooms without soap. Backed by their unions, they wanted to work safely at home during the pandemic, just as many as just as many of their students' parents were. I, I I'm reading this because teachers teach students in classrooms. That is what they do. They don't get to stay home like many of their students' parents were because their students' parents don't teach in a classroom. Now, as it happened, they did get to stay home because of these teachers' unions and everything like that. But there is this notion somehow that because there were bathrooms without soap, they should stay home for their own sake. And this is the kind of thinking that I wonder, we keep thinking this question, is this a hinge moment? Are we now going to go back to normal in which there's lip service paid to how wonderful my kids' teachers are, and da da da, blah blah blah, and the unions that whatever, and the people on the right will say the unions are bad, and people on the left will say unions are good because they need their votes, and there'll be teachers in rubber rooms, and there'll be all this, and nothing will change. Or is the idea that people were saying people in an, in an, whose job it is to educate people in a classroom believe that it was their right not to educate people in a classroom get paid full salary benefits and everything like that and ruin the lives of the people they were supposed to help is that going to go on or are we now have we is have are we going to is this one of the parts of the pandemic we are going to go into amnesia on or are we going to build from it and i really don't know the answer to that question
3: Can I just chime in to say there's a connection here to to what Jim has been writing about uh, for us, about institutional rot, the need for experts and the need to somehow fix the institutional rot, because it really is more like termite damage, right? It happens very slowly. The institution still looks like it's standing, but at some point enough pressure is applied and and parts of it begin to crumble. And I think for a lot of parents, uh, again, I live in a blue city where the teachers unions have a lot of influence. even among pretty liberal democratic voters in a city like mine whose kids are in public school are do there has been a real paradigm shift in how they approach things institutions like teachers' unions and institutions like public schools. A lot of parents are voting with their feet. Enrollment numbers are way down in, in major public school systems across the country. Whether that is just a blip or that continues, we'll see in the the coming uh, year or so. But I do think there is a possibility here, but I guess the question that really concerns me and particularly with the scientific institutions is how do you rebuild that kind of trust? Because the backlash is understandable, um, the anger and the mistrust and the paranoia and the conspiracy theorizing, but how do you rebuild from within an institution that's compromised itself to that level?
2: That's why I ended my piece with it. (laughs) With a, you know basically with a question that i don't think there's an easy way to do this and i do think that this backlash is going going to be broad in our society you all talked about this on the podcast a few weeks ago about the impact of of the financial crisis in 2008 and how it didn't seem to have a huge political impact initially but uh but it kind of sank into the culture in ways that led to this resentment of elites this idea that the insiders have everything rigged and that led to this populism that we saw with bernie sanders and with trump and you know that was that really it really changed our politics we may see something far worse here if people decide that that the government the scientists all you know covered up the real source of this virus and meanwhile you know our our schools betrayed us our governors sent people back to nursing homes to die this could could filter into our culture over the course of years and and really undermine the 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 authority or the respect for for institutions and these are institutions that we still need you know we we, we do need health expertise we do need public health we do need a functional education system so, and a backlash could do, you know, I think you, one might root for sort of a mild backlash, but a backlash that really sweeps out the good with the bad would be devastating.
0: I mean, I think the point that we were making is that there is, there is literally no way when there is an epic, an epical event that changes everybody's life, which was true in 2008 and is true in 2020. There is no way to tell what the consequences of that are gonna be over time. I mean, you, they're, they're, Trump was not a predictable outcome of 2008. He just wasn't, I mean, because nobody, because when he emerged in 2015, people didn't say, oh, well, look, this is because of 2008. I mean, I wrote such a piece in March of 2016, it took me eight or nine months to think of it, you know that that this was some kind of weird corkscrew re- response to the financial crisis, and I was not much echoed. And I, you know, I, I still think that that is actually the best explanation for understanding how this happened and how it happened in the party that was out of power for the six or seven years. You know, for the seven years before he emerged that the necessary adjunct to his rise was not only an attack on Obama and Hillary and all that, but an attack on the Republicans, that there had to be both, that his, that was his secret sauce. And that was the part that, that was imprecisely understood. And um, we don't know what 2024 will bring uh, in relation to all of this, but the notion that we can guess or try to play into it, I think, or politically play into it, it has to be intuitive. The person who can do that will intuit this, I don't think, will not know it. Like, if you're sitting there as Ted Cruz, one of these kind of, like, overly intellectualizing politicians who tries to come up with a course to follow, to get you this, you know, get you through this path, that's not the way it's going to happen. Someone is going to feel his way into this. And it's not gonna be Kamala Harris. That's all I'm gonna say. But uh, uh, before we go, I also do need to tell you guys about the X chair. I talked to you about the X chair. I'm gonna to talk to you again about the X chair uh, because it is the greatest with its uh, dynamic variable lumbar support. And now introducing LMX featuring cooling heat and massage therapy, Directly to your core, helping to increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. Four different massage modes in the LMX. Fast warming heat technology for therapy for your sore back. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trade up from that old uncomfortable office chair and trade up to an X chair. Listen, X chair prices are going up on July 11th for the first time in two years. So beat the price increase. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair. Commentary.com or call one eight four four X chair to save one hundred dollars off your order. X chair is a thirty day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as thirty dollars a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code X for a free X wheel blade casters commentary.com. Guys, there is going to be an election today. There's an election today, or the end of the election, however you want to call it, in New York City. You'll be heard us talk about it. We're not going to talk about it very much here. I just want to read you a quote from Eric Adams, who is currently the leading candidate in the race, uh, um, who, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, um, I met him in the 90s when he was a sort of an anti-cop cop cop and ran an organization within the police department called 100 Black Men in Law Enforcement Who Care. And if you had told me 20 years later that he might be a serious candidate for mayor, uh, I, I would have, you know, I would have laughed harder than I did that year at there's something about Mary, because um, he was not an impressive person. And uh, here's a quote uh, that he gave yesterday. I just want to read this. This guy is the leading candidate in the race for mayor of New York City. He was asked, what's the best concert you've ever been to? And his answer was Curtis Mayfield at the Wingate Concert Series. At that concert, there was a rainstorm and the lights fell on Curtis Mayfield, and they actually paralyzed him at that concert. He died a few years ago, but it was an amazing concert before that happened. So the best concert he's ever been to is the one where Curtis Mayfield was paralyzed in a rainstorm when a light pole fell on him and paralyzed him and made him a paraplegic.
3: Yeah, but besides this, that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? I mean, it's 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> he is likelier to be mayor of New York than anybody else at this moment, as I speak to you. So. It's going to be a crazy four years if he is mayor. That is all I'm going to say to you.
3: Can I just endorse the crazy video from years ago that I sent you all when he, you know, right after he announced he was running, where he goes around a room and and shows you all the places where your kid might might be hiding crack or weapons. It's on YouTube. I actively encourage every New Yorker to take a glance. It's kind of hilarious.
0: But what's interesting, of course, is if he wins, he will win because he will have convinced people that he's enough of a cop that the city needs somebody who knows about security and, and, and crime. Now, he was an anti-cop cop, so it's a little like John Kerry running as the you know pro-military guy in 2004 when John Kerry's reputation was made by throwing his medals away. But... You know, beggars can't be choosers, I guess. And with that, Jim Meggs, thank you for joining us. Go to commentarymagazine.com and read his piece on the lab leak hypothesis, as well as his entire oeuvre of the tech commentary column. And thank God for Big Pharma last month. Uh, Noah is under the weather. I hope you feel better, Noah. He really, on our Zoom, It's not looking, not, he's looking a little peaked, but he just gave me the thumbs up. Uh, Abe, Christine, uh, we'll be back tomorrow for John Hortz keep the candle burning. I'm John Hortz keep the candle burning. They're not John Hortz and I'm not for John Hortz. Keep the candle burning.